Hi, I'm Garrett, and welcome to The Conversation. I think conversation is one of the most important tools we have for building and maintaining genuine relationships. In the age of the internet and social media, the conversation is a dying art. While we're technically more connected than ever, it seems more difficult than ever to engage with alternative perspectives in a meaningful way. We talk past each other and speak totally different languages without even knowing it. This show is my attempt at working on that problem. I'm trying to learn how to have meaningful conversation and practice what I learn. It's partly an experiment. Maybe if I start having more difficult conversations, I can get better at it. Maybe we can all get better at it. I don't know how this experiment's going to turn out, but hey, this could be interesting. Thank you so much for being willing to sit down and, and have a conversation with us. Not the sitting down part. I'm sure you would have done that anyways. I, I do a lot of sitting. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all these days? Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Um, but I guess maybe, well, we, we can get into things. We, we should yep. figure out, first of all, why, why we're having this conversation. I can kind of explain why I wanted to have this conversation, but I have no idea why you want to have this conversation. So... Maybe I'll start with what I know. I do this all the time. I'm a pastor. I talk to exactly, people. I, and I don't get it. I, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I, I think that's something from our side is like just understanding what a pastor is. Like that's something I was talking to Garrett about uh, earlier today. It was like kind of coming from a history of uh, being in, uh, I guess the. North American evangelical church. And uh, like for me, your content has really, it, well, it came after a common story that you always engage with on your channel where there's someone defecting from the church. I very much had a very similar uh, kind of story arc in my life where coming up after high school, there was a, a bit of a defecting from the church and wondering what's valuable about it. And I was saying to Garrett, I kind of had this, epiphany that I'm somewhat supporting like a pyramid scheme of like <laughs> pastors creating pastors. And, and, like I, I didn't want to be a pastor. And I remember there was a Sunday morning service where they like invited up all the kids that were like called to ministry. And I was going to like normal university. And I was like, that was sort of a nail in the coffin for me for a while. I was like, okay, so screw whatever I want to do. It's all about creating pastors, and for some reason, they've <laughs> duped us into funding this pyramid scheme, right? And then, you know, Jordan Peterson started to kind of revive Christianity for me, and I think that's a common story. Yeah. And then, uh, from sort of a non-religious, non-church perspective, and then your content was a bit more of like, oh, okay, this is not what a pastor is. Like, he's actually sort of creating something valuable which you know i kind of had seen it as a rent seeking thing almost in my mind <laughs> well and jordan peterson is like the the new i don't know he, he's he's definitely the jesus smuggler because i was really trying to figure out whether or not i wanted to call myself a christian or trying to figure out what the hell i am and i i was honestly it was partially due kind of reconnecting with connor that like made me think Okay, maybe not all Christians are idiots. 
<laughs> some of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I, I think I've grown in a lot of compassion for the Christian idiot over the past several <laughs> y- years too. Even just like, but I even that obviously that name is just a joke because the people I'm describing are not idiots. But I mean, so yeah, I guess I'm I'm interested in you and your content partially just because Connor is like, hey, you should you should listen to Paul Vanderk. Like he's he's a pastor, and I was like, that's interesting. I don't actually like like pastors much anymore there's not really any pastors i'd like to listen to but that's that's part of the conversation itself is like is that what a pastor does is just somebody you listen to (laughs) well who who that you listen to and hopefully who listens to you too right well so right now you're actually listening to me too so yeah (laughs) pastors pastors do You'll see pastors on Sunday morning talking with a lot of people listening to them, but throughout the course of a week, pastors do a lot more listening than talking generally. Yeah. Hmm. Well, like both of us, I I don't know, especially being COVID right now, it's a weird thing trying to figure out like, I was just at the point where I was starting to ask myself the question like, where, like I should probably go to church. Where where do I go to church? How do I how do I approach church? And then that question got <laughs> kind of delayed a little bit. And then it, we got kind of got to this problem of like, well, I guess who am I going to listen to? And it's like, well, I already know plenty of people I want to listen to. I, I there's some great speakers out there, but yeah, they they don't live next door. No, and so is COVID and that's a problem. Shut that down. Yeah, the the, yeah. the speaking or listening part of pastoring, where you know that's. Like I'm going to a church, it's gone to online, and I'll be honest, like I try to listen. You know, yeah. my, my parents get up on Sunday morning and listen. I'll listen maybe sometime during the <laughs> week if I, if I get around to it, but it, it's hard to stay connected. Well, and the problem is like it's from, from a purely like just how good it is or like how interesting it is, yeah. I, it's difficult to find, like I don't know, it's, it's hard to find a good speaker. Speaking is hard. And people yeah. who are good at it, it's like, that's that's something pretty cool when you could find somebody who's actually good at talking. Yeah. Well, now with the internet, I guess it's the best can kind of get a monopoly and we have the technology to distribute only the best speakers. And so it's it's like, especially if there's no listening side of pastoring, is there much, you know, what's the future of it in, you know, in the COVID time, especially. So maybe we can, we can ask you just to kind of, get things get the ball rolling a little bit why why do you want to listen to people so much <laughs> that's a good question people are hard to listen to sometimes which <laughs> the internet will prove to you and demonstrate to you reliably L- listening you now listening is part of caring and why should why should i care about randos and strangers yeah. And that's you know a big part of what Christianity as a discipline and as a project is designed to deploy is in fact loving your neighbor all the way up to and including your enemy. That is not a natural thing. But it is to a degree. We usually tend to love the people who love us back and do things for us or might do something for us. And so then we'll extend generosity and, and, and humans aren't that, I mean, humans are mercenary, but there's, there's obviously variability to it, but 
Oh gosh, this is a it's a tr- it's a tremendously difficult thing because it gets into the question of human motivation. And it would be nice to say, you know, my motivations are pure and I listen to people because I love Jesus and he says to love everyone, but that's hardly true. That's, you know, maybe the motivation I put up in front, but you know, we're we're so we're so we're such bundles of mixed bags of emotion. But I, I have found that listening to people helps people. And, you know, so I have a lot of homeless people that just as an accident of geography like to live against my office door. And so then I watch how the general population deals with those people. Now, these homeless people are usually some combination of mentally ill or substance abuse or just have the kind of just just lack of capacity to get along with anybody else okay so in terms of people easy to love they're really they're in single digits you know they're way down at the bottom yet total strangers will drive by see someone in need like that stop and give them cash shoes clothing food but to actually sit and listen to that homeless person for an hour, I'd probably rather give them cash because <laughs> that uh, America, you know, when I lived in the Dominican Republic, people there had more time than money. North Americans tend to have more money than time. And so that's how we use our money to balance that. So mm-hmm. it is an act of love to listen to someone and to care about what they're saying. And, and we, every child knows this because they want their parents to listen to them. Every spouse knows this because they want their their spouse or their lover to listen to them. So it is an act of love to listen. And one of the things that I figured out as a pastor was you know, you go to you go to school and you have all this education and you think you'll be helping people, but over the years I discovered I helped people a lot more just by listening to them than by any advice I had to give. And this, you find the same thing with therapists often. They sit and they listen to people's troubles all day long, and people say, thank you, you've helped me a lot, right. and leave a check for three figures. So <laughs> it's how the world is made better. But what what is this? Like, I, I don't, maybe I do want to do that. I mean, I, I'm kind of figuring out what I want to do with, the, like, I, I guess it's it's it, in style to start a podcast, right? Now. So everybody wants yeah. to start a podcast. <laughs> Because we need more of them, that's for sure. <laughs> what did you say the other day that like podcasts are probably over in six months? Yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways, we we probably do need more connection. So, I mean, prod- podcasts is a broad umbrella. Not many podcasts. I, I think a lot of them are you know people pivoting from a traditional media interviewer journalist into this is just they they just slap the podcast label and. Now it's trendy versus you know actually having conversations, which is right, that's a, a subset of podcasts, which yeah. is what you've expressed more interest in than interviewing, right? Right. Which yeah, so like what is it about? Cause yeah, because cause in I feel like as as maybe kind of when you put your therapist or or maybe maybe we'll call it a pastoral role hat on, it's like maybe that's even more listening than it is talking. But what's what's the conversation? Like what you're you're not just listening to people. You're letting random people, you know, take up time out of your day and tell you stuff. And like, is it interesting to you? Like, most of the time, sometimes <laughs> it's a little dull. 
so part of, you know, one of the most gratifying things that happened as a result of, I, I didn't expect to make a channel like this. I didn't sit down with a master plan. It My channel just kind of grew. And one of the, it shouldn't have been surprising, but one of the more surprising things about my channel that grew were the conversations that, you know, not only did people want to talk to me, they wanted to talk to each other. And so we have the Randos United channel and Cassidy has a channel and Andrea has a channel and Karen has a channel and Mary has a channel. And so people started having conversations and putting them on the internet. And then we had the discord server and people are always having conversations there. So I, I think the, the desire to make podcasts is the desire to be heard. And then, you know, so you go ahead and you pay your hundred bucks to Podbean, and you get your podcast and then you start putting stuff out into the world and you look at the analytics and all right three people listen that's your <laughs> mom and my mom and some rando oh, out geez, there we could have just done this in the living room and not had to pay the hundred bucks <laughs> exactly <laughs> but if you so you know to kind of swing back to the whole church conversation people and and this, I mean, your questions about, I, I sit here with questions about what the future of the church is all the time. People go to church not because the pastor is the best speaker. People yeah. go to church to be loved and to find people who will look across the, the, the pews or the aisle or the casserole dish and say, you matter to me. Maybe not as much as my kid or even my dog, but you at least matter somewhat. And we need that. Yeah, but because friends we, is hard too, though. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and and churches, well, churches kind of have a referee, not always a good one. But you know, just I was I was looking at the Bridges of Meaning Discord server, and little scraps break out there between people, and people get sideways of each other. The thing about a church is you're sort of, especially in the days, you know, fifty or hundred years ago, uh, you, you get sideways with someone. You're kind of on an, under an obligation to, at some point, forgive and make up and move on. Yeah. And that's a really important skill because most of the homeless people that I deal with, that's exactly the skill they don't have and some of them can't have. And that's why they're living on the street. Yeah. It's not just money or drugs or mental illness because yeah. they can't get along with anyone. Well, that's what and, we were and, talking earlier that like. I, I kind of see a pattern that there's problems in the church, but none of them are unique to the church. They're all general societal issues that, you know, I, I see you kind of have your finger on the pulse of um, sort of what's going on in the zeitgeist. And you, you you can bring a lot of that to the church. My worry is a lot of churches probably aren't doing that and seeing this. And, you know, I was calling this aspect of it, you know, the great divorce as sort of a nod to C.S. Lewis that there's, uh, you know, we have, not only literal like marital divorce rates um, increasing, but there is, um, you know, people just leaving the church or church shopping seems so popular. And just the yeah. idea that you can, uh, you, you, you don't have to have a commitment to a certain uh, anything or even country. Like I think part of the political issues we see is the divorce of people politically. And it's, you know, we haven't yet seen that undermine our, you know, current, uh, Western political sphere, but I think there's certainly a, a threat of that. And so there's this kind of lack of commitment or um, in, in some ways almost a lack of tradition. Like part of me wants to like 
pick my parents for not giving me a church that people just stayed at like or, or their parents yeah. i don't know where where it happened but like like why wasn't i given a culture of commitment now right. i have to basically choose well, what to commit to and, and part of it i think is just that like you go far enough back in history and commitment isn't really a choice it's like now now we have the budget to church shop and and to life partner shop and to well even to counselor shop and this is something i've noticed too like looking like how do you choose who's the right teacher for you other than just who's the most interesting to you? Because yeah. being interesting isn't the be-all and end-all variable that describes how good that person is going to be for you and how much of an impact they're going to have on your life. Just like, I, I want to listen to Jordan Peterson because I like it. But like, what if I need to be listening to that, you know, the pastor of that church that I, I really didn't care to be going to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that, at least at this point, we haven't completely consumerized the medical profession because <laughs> if we chose our doctors like we're choosing these other mm -hmm. things, I'm going to go to a doctor that says, you know, eat more, exercise less, and gain another 100 pounds. Um, it's, I feel like it's <laughs> creeping in there, though, too. And, and to some extent, it's even almost necessary, depending on the problem that you're confronted with, like the, even looking at what Peterson and his family have been yeah. struggling with, right? Like. Yeah. What do you do with when when the, what's what's kind of pre-prescribed doesn't work, but like no commitment doesn't work either? Yeah, it's in, in a lot of ways we're the victims of our own success. Whereas a hundred or two hundred years ago, you know, you stick with the marriage and you stick with the family and you stick with the church because if you don't, well, you don't want to know what your life will look like. That's high risk, maybe some reward, but people who are ostracized, you know. 50 or 75 years ago in the Christian Reformed Church, if the preacher came and threatened you with church discipline, you got your act together because you would be ostracized from that community. Right. And that might mean, you know, getting, you know, confronting your alcohol habit or, you know, ending the affair that's threatening your marriage or, you know, a lot of, a lot of difficult things, but we, we are victims in some ways of our own success. Yeah, and like, well, and just like trying to even in, like I only got married two years ago, not even quite two years ago. I'm, I'm a very, very freshly married boy. Um, but try to think like, have these conversations with my wife, how, you know, under what circumstances do you consider divorce? Yeah. Like, what, and it's like, I don't, I don't know how to have that conversation because if you know. Ride or die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like if, you, if, you're, if you're willing to consider a scenario where, where it's, it's like that, that wasn't built into the, into the vows. The vows yeah. said in sickness and in death. But so so is, is it not really marriage if there's a contingency plan? Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I, well, I don't, I don't know how to work out commitment when you don't really have to commit. Yeah. So if you're like a young person today and you want commitment, but <laughs> like, like, is there, can society remove that for you? Like, how can you, where can you find that if you're looking for it? Well, the first thing you should do is practice commitment. Everybody wants to be, right. you know, I want you to commit to me, but I want my options open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah, power game. Yeah. So, 
you know, Peterson, it's interesting because Peterson is, you know, someone just commented on the discord. He makes the, the best, the most compelling case for monogamy and marriage much better than he has, he's ever heard any minister. And he's not using the Bible or God or anything like that. He's, he's just making an argument. And we, we, we want, we want commitment from others, but we recognize how costly it is. And I think, I, I think that at some point, if you're actually going to be the kind of person that others will love and want in their life, you're going to have to learn how to lay down your life for the other. And I remember when, you know, marriage was sort of one step of learning to deal with my own, confronting my own selfishness. I didn't realize how selfish I was until I was married and my wife starts putting some demands on me. And if you really want a lesson in that, have a kid because, <laughs> you know, you, there's no reasoning with a newborn, you know, can't you see it's three in the morning? No, they can't. Um, you're going to let the kid cry all night. No, you won't. Um, uh, you know, people do, you know, babies do die at the hands of their parents, but fortunately there's a lot in you that says you love this child and you're about to make incredible sacrifices for this child. And that child is actually going to teach you what love means. And the lessons don't end as the child grows up. Yeah. So, and it's that way that a lot of this stuff is built into us, but we can reject it. We right. regularly do. When it, and it seems like it's, it, it, the most powerful instinct, it makes sense to be sort of the, the, Familial one. I assume that's sort of what you mean when you say built into us, that it's like, it's, yep. it's an instinct measure. Yeah. But it's like, even that level, like, like we said, with the, with the divorce rates going up, it's like, that's, I don't know. It's, it's just a scary story. I guess when I, when I, I'm looking at the world and trying to figure out where are we going and how do I mean, I, I think what you said, that's probably right. Probably the way you protest it is to just commit to something. Yeah. And I, I guess I've been sort of experimenting with that a little bit, calling myself an evangelical, despite the fact that I feel like probably most evangelicals won't won't want me. <laughs> like, sorry, this is my family. I was I was born into this tradition, and I like I I don't I'm still really not understanding the question. If if I need to like like I, I even heard like the Peugeot brothers like they became Orthodox. They were yeah. And it's like, is that an option? Could I do that? I don't. <laughs> do you become another religion or just are you one and you discover it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think there's something in you that's like the, because the, there was a time in my life when I was sort of attending church still, but I had in my mind affected. And there's a cultural word or a cultural kind of uh, stigma against that that they call like hypocrisy. So you could say that I was a hypocrite because I was going even though you know I didn't always believe, but is 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 hypocrisy? I guess the opposite of commitment, because in one way I was enacting that kind of choosing to, even though you know just with my actions I was acting it out, but in my, like my mind, and my heart, I wasn't really bought in. But I, yeah. in the long run, I'm so glad that I didn't totally step out because you know I was able to then revive a lot of that for myself, right. you know, down yeah. the road. So the commitment paid off, but it's like. 
it, it's so weird because I kind of had this guilt of like, am I a hypocrite? Is that sort of even what what faith is too? It's just like doing something be- because you got to do it, not because it makes sense. It's just like I I I spent a lot of my teens trying to like make sense of faith or like trying to th- thinking about like faith isn't really faith unless it's reasonable. And it's like I, I I think I think the opposite now. I think I don't think faith is really faith until it's not reasonable. Because it's like faith is what you do when your other faculties are telling you something or your more immediate faculties are telling you to do something different. It's like having faith in somebody or being faithful in a relationship or being faithful right. to to your community. It's like even in that situation where you're like, I don't know if I believe this. It's like, well, who cares? Just do it. So like I, ironically enough, when I would say I had the least faith, I might have you had, had the most, most faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the the age of authenticity is sort of monkeyed with this because we we sort of have become creatures that watch ourselves incessantly. And okay, but that's that's complicating your life. I mean, when you wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth, oh, am I brushing my teeth because of the tyrannical dental establishment? Um, <laughs> you know, ought, ought I to be free to let my teeth right. rot? Yeah, in, in order to act, you have to like kind of be willing to be dishonest or, or, or willing to be misrepresented or it's like yeah. doing or saying anything is sort of potentially saying or meaning more than you intend it to but sorry that's just the way communication works or the way action yeah. works yeah yeah but I, I guess true. to ma- maybe we can um transition here into something because I, I wanted to ask you I, I don't know if it's a personal question. Maybe if you don't don't feel like pushing the conversation in this, in this direction, that's fine. But I, how have you, I, I imagine like within your own immediate circles, becoming a, uh, just just to be trolly, I'll say a disciple of Jordan Peterson has maybe affected some of your relationships or some of your peers or some of like, you're part of the, the CRC, which is not, I mean, when you talk about the theology that like is part of that, doesn't isn't something I'm familiar with. Like my my dad was part of the Dutch Reformed Church, but like, so I'm, I'm familiar with Calvinism a little bit, and maybe maybe I could ask you some questions about Calvinism later. But like, how are you staying committed to your people in light of you know a developing worldview? I I haven't I never found my interest in Jordan Peterson as threatening to my Christian commitment at all. I I think probably being a I imagine I have the largest YouTube following of any Christian Reformed minister. I think that's <laughs> it's probably pretty easily the case. And I think a fair number of colleagues of mine and friends are were concerned. First they didn't know anything about Jordan Peterson and then via the reputational hit job that was done on him, now suddenly I'm somehow aligned with the wrong side yeah. of the aisle. Okay. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not particularly worried about may, that. Maybe past the identity thing though, just like the, even, even Jonathan Peugeot's interpretation though, of like old Testament biblical stories. That's not something that I, especially when I talk to my parents, that's not something that they're really comfortable with at all. When I start talking about like Moses, maybe not being a historical person in, in the literal way they were thinking, or like Jonah being, uh, being a story that's historical or, or the, or the creation account not being as literal or at least in the, in the the way they might mean literal. Yeah, I'm not, 
a lot of people listen to Peugeot and because he leans on the symbolic, they make assumptions about questions about historicity, which he usually sort of just completely sidesteps and says, that's not entirely relevant. And that, that, that gets into a, you know, some of the videos I'm making now doing some reading in George Marsden about fundamentalism. There's a, I, 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 for one, don't feel the need to be a skeptic about historicity of things in the Bible. I, I don't feel the need to be skeptical about that. And I look at a lot of people who do feel the need to be skeptical about that and think you're only skeptical about that because of peer pressure and status pressure. Did you go and are, yeah, I don't see you hopping planes to Jordan and Egypt and the Sinai looking for evidence of the mosaic journey across the desert. Why are you, why are you so worried about your reputation with respect to, you know, who was Jonah and what was his boat trip like? Right. Um, it's that entire, that entire debate arose in a particular context in the church that I understand why people were anxious about it, but these, these kind of questions about details in the Bible were with us far before the modernist fundamentalist fight. So, you know, you can, and, and in fact, even people such as John Calvin, when asked questions about, um, you know, perspectives and ancient Hebrew cosmology wrote, the Bible is written to a man, a common man looking through the world, looking at the world through common eyes. That was John Calvin's answer to that. Augustine had all sorts of ideas about creation and Genesis and that account. So these questions have always been with us, but they, a certain battle arose in the 19th, earlier, really 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century around these issues that sort of became defining markers. And I'm interested in some of those ideas, but I don't think people on either side are generally terribly well equipped to fight those battles. And so I, I don't well, find, I don't worry about them. The, well, the, the thing that I'm more annoyed by in that conversation is just like, is just, well, I mean, I, I don't know where your community's at, but like when it, when it comes to like the churches I grew up, and I say churches because I used to be part of my grandparents touring uh, like evangelical ministry so I went to a lot of different, especially um, Assemblies of God, charismatic churches, Pentecostal churches, all over the place. And I got the impression that like evolution was was a was a swear word, right? And it was like, especially, I don't like reading some of even reading some of Dawkins and reading and listening to to Brett and Heather talk about evolution. It's like that. Even though the, the biology part of it, I sometimes can get lost in all the all the data and all, all that you can know about particular animals. I love hearing them talk about the systems of evolution because it's like that. Those principles seem to be useful for analyzing like everything. And 
when when kind of my community says, hey, you know, evolution is is just anti-Christianity propaganda, <laughs> that's it's really frustrating to me. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm getting a lot of flack from, I mean, maybe not a lot of flack, but I at least annoy my parents whenever I try to try to reference anything to do with evolution or or the Earth being old, and it's like. I don't know. I, I guess that was where my question was was heading, but maybe you haven't experienced much of that. No, that, that those fights have been in the Christian Reformed Church for a long time. I think probably better than trying to master either the evolution or the the biblical interpretation might be to read some church history around these subjects by guys like George Marston, who's you know has written more about fundamentalism and some of these fights than a lot of people. And you begin to see that the the church fights are a lot more complex than well you might ask yourself why do we why do we have these pitched battles around certain concepts what what about those concepts were were salient for example the the scopes trial the the famous trial in Dayton Tennessee right. What was who was William Jennings Bryant and why was he fighting that battle? A lot of why he was fighting that battle was because they were seeing pretty clearly in the early 20th century a a eugenics that was pretty commonly assumed by the intelligentsia that was blatantly racist. Now, today, people don't look at that history because basically Hitler scared that out of our culture. Yeah. For maybe 75 years to say, oh, well, hmm. uh, you know, the history of Planned Parenthood. I mean, if you actually dig into history on these things, everybody's got mud on their face. And so I get, I get asked, and there's lots of other tricks you can play with people. Like people want to get really gnarly about this. I'll ask them about the science that put gas in their car tank or the science that their doctor learned in order to treat them. They don't reject the doctor or the geologist. Why are you jumping up and down in your church? So probably they're too excited about some things that they shouldn't be. Yet still deep within the DNA was a very strong point that is salient to that fight, which was that people who people and traditions that sort of caved early on these things did in fact lose their way. And so maybe a certain biblicism, while certainly has some technical problems to it, actually managed to preserve right. a, a living, breathing congregation it's and tradition. It's faith thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's really complex as, as you dig into it. And so I I tend to not try to poke people in their axioms too much on either side because most people like i say they're not they're not traveling to sinai yeah. to try and figure out search for the historical moses yeah how much does it really matter to them yet if they sort of cave in and say oh it's just all a myth well now suddenly other naughty questions arise well what about that resurrection of jesus because if that is just sort of a story, how much can I necessarily count on sacrificing 
back to where we started talking about sacrificing my time and my life for someone else who might not ever actually give anything back to me to compensate for that sacrifice. So these are issues, but I, when I look at how they're fought over, I, I, I've never seen that as tremendously productive. Yeah. I I think I could even testify to you pointing at, um, if you're frustrated with that, looking at church history to sort of get some release. Cause I think, Part of, that's part of what really appealed to me about your context is I was like 20 years old. I grew up in a tradition, but I didn't understand the history of it at all. I had no church history or I didn't understand even other, like, uh, you know, it seems like there's so many denominations that almost doesn't even make sense when I'm actually reading the Bible. Like why, when did this happen and why did this happen? And and you were really a, a foot in the door for me to to just kind of put my experience in the context of well, there's a whole range of experiences that are all still sort of Christianity. And, you know, I, you know, I, I guess I go to one church, but it's maybe in this community, I don't have to reflect the views of everyone. Actually, probably the value of the community is heightened by more of us having some of these different perspectives, as long as we, I guess, have a tolerance for, um, for the different perspectives, which maybe is, I guess that gets into like you get to choose how tolerant the community you're embedded in is going to be. Right. Well, and another thing I like when community is too much about agreeing about things and having the same opinion and having the same stances on things, then you lose some of the the freedom to kind of go on a personal journey and explore some stuff. Because if I know that my you know that my community is still going to be there for me. And they're still going to be believing the same things, even while I go on an expedition and wondering whether or not Jesus ever, Jesus actually, you know, sort of historically rose from the dead, or whether or not Genesis is is true or is literal. Like, there's actually somebody I kind of have some 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 gripes with, but I has said some really meaningful things that helped me in my journey is Michael Gunger, and he was talking about when um, when he was kind of you know, he became an atheist and the world fell out from underneath him and everything changed. He, he had a pivotal moment in that journey where he realized that if God actually exists, I don't have to make him exist by believing in him. <laughs> right? right. There's, there's a freedom of like, you know, if the truth is really true and that's what it is by definition, I don't need to believe it. It can just be, and I can go and be wrong. And having that freedom to go and, and be wrong and have something to return to and, and, and know that it's still, I, I guess that's, it, it only loosely ties into having a congregation that's still going to be believing the same thing when you go on your, come back from your pilgrimage. But yeah. it's, it's nice to have some stability to come back to. I think part of what we're probably going to face is that a lot of churches aren't going to be there. Because the the people who have been right. paying for you know the building and the staff, a lot of them are getting old and dying, and so I, I see that often where people say, "Oh, the church will always be here." Yeah, it's, it's a lot of places; it's disappearing, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's scary. And what's gonna you know? It's it always strikes me that when people knock on my door looking for help of some kind, 
They didn't go to the AMPM. The, you know, they didn't go to the convenience store. They didn't go to the supermarket. They didn't go to the drugstore. They came to a church. Why did they come to a church? What happens if that church is no longer here? And churches do a lot of lifting in a community that um, mostly goes unheralded. Mm-hmm. And when those churches are gone, right. what are you going to raise taxes? Yeah. Well, and and I I've been kind of thinking about that too. Even though in the moment I feel like I, I I forgot that that's where we're headed. And yeah, that's that's a really terrifying thing to think about, especially with you know I, I wonder if maybe the the new appreciation a lot of people have garnered for religion and for church due to this kind of new wave of of like just interest in the Bible through people like Peterson and Peugeot. Maybe that'll help. But um, I I, I kind of have been internalizing a little bit of a lot of the the problems like i feel like some people's response to going through sort of deconstruction journey is to kind of be able to just take everything they dislike about themselves and every problem they had with the world and just throw it on their tradition and say well that that was all the problems and now i can get rid of that (laughs) and i've been i guess I, i see how that's a really easy trap to fall into and i'm i'm sure i fall into it in a lot of other ways but i've been trying not to do that with when it comes to you know my like evangelical tradition i've been trying to identify with it anyways and then from there kind of look and say well what what are we doing wrong that's that's causing this fracturing or this fault like did we not rise to meet this situation very well because it it seems like we're headed for trouble like what 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 did we miss Is it just too That's, hard of a, a level to beat? Like, is this just the level where, is this just an apocalypse where mostly everybody dies? <laughs> I, I remain optimistic about the church. The difficulty with transitions like this is that there's a lot of loss. And, but at the same time, churches are constantly morphing to, be able to once again grow out of their community and engage their community. It's just that the transitions are very costly. So, you know, in, in terms of church life, it's often, I've I've been very, I've been very bullish on church planting because it's easier to have a baby than to raise the dead. And a church like mine is probably going to die and with it, a lot of good things are going to die, but there will be other churches that rise up and learn some things, mm-hmm. but there's just a lot of loss in the transition. So I, you know, I, you know, what we started talking about earlier in this conversation, what does it mean that, I mean, if you go back 50 years ago, especially to rural areas, you didn't have a lot of options in terms of church. You go to the church that your family went to or your community went to. Now, suddenly, via the internet, you know you can listen to the best preachers and speakers who align with you on various social, social dimensions and hone that. And the likelihood that you're going to find a local church with a pastor that can rival that, right. pretty low. So then what is the local church going to be? It will probably be that community that it probably it might not necessarily align doctrinally with everything. And again, churches sort of did that 
as a result of the, the fracture of the Protestant Reformation. But there might be an entirely different configuration. Even now, if you look at, let's say, more sacramental traditions that have been light on homilies, the Orthodox or the Roman Catholic, nobody goes to those churches for the homily. They go for the mass and they go for the liturgy and they go for the Eucharist. Okay. And then people are maybe getting that at their local church, but they're learning on YouTube or on podcasts. So there's going to be a lot of continued dislocation. My concerns arise that there have been, the churches have been physically rooted in places and that physicality has been fundamental to a lot of the dynamics of church life that are not easily reproduced in a cyber environment. And we have no idea how we're going to manage that transition. Yeah. Well, yeah, like even you would think sort of that all that goes into a conversation with somebody is like, you know, uh, audio and, and visual. Like I, I, I'm, I, it, it intuitively, or, or maybe, I don't know, it reasonably makes sense that right now we're having the same thing as if I was sitting in your office, but we're not like no. that. It's not the same thing. There's, there's actually an infinite more amount of data that we are having and, and experiencing and sort of interfacing with when we're face to face with people. And we, we don't have a good way of quantifying that because it, it just seems like, well, I can see you and I can hear you. So isn't that the same thing? Isn't that the same thing? Yeah. But <laughs> that's why <laughs> How do I say that it's COVID, not? therapists weren't allowed to do this. Yeah. <laughs> now during COVID, a lot of therapists, it's the only way they can do it. Right. And they understood the difference, but yeah, yet here we are. I think the liturgy side is really big part of what's missing i was i I work online so it's all like 100 percent meetings and i was talking (laughs) to my wife that like i'm nervous that i'm gonna forget the like kind of polite patterns once we go back in the office to (laughs) to, like even introduce like there's there's sort of a just lack of like hello greeting that that's it's just sort of fallen away as we've switched to basically a two-dimensional video audio sometimes just audio um, dialogue. As, as, Eric Weinstein would argue and say that it is three dimensions. Because... <laughs> yeah, the wa- the the waves are in space time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Even the point. liturgy side is is really what I think I still have some sort of longing for in my church. Like I'm I'm at a church that's pretty abnormal, very focused on sort of community outreach, which is the the, the dimension you were talking about. But I when I listen to Peugeot and, and hear about Orthodox, I kind of have this longing for just kind of doing a, like performing something, I don't know, like going through the emotions <laughs> that we, right. we really don't do. Right. Um, it's funny, the negative connotation of hearing you say a phrase like going through the motions, it's like there, there's, a, there's been a, a, such a deep rejection of that idea that like that that's, that's a derogatory statement, going through the motions. But like, like that's, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And like Pentecostal, yeah, they'll be like, we're not just going through the motions. We're going to have a real (laughs) encounter. No, let's just go through the motions. Yeah, maybe we could start with going through the motions (laughs) and the encounter will come later. Well, and and even like, so for a a short period, I was going going to a a church called The Meeting House. Maybe you're familiar or you've heard the name Bruxy Cavey before. Maybe not. Anyways, uh, that his, his book is called The End of Religion. And it's about how God wants, God, God wants a real relationship with you. And like, one of the, I mean, 
I, I read his book, and there, there one of the I thought was one of the most meaningful and interesting parts of it was like he talks about you know in a marriage, you you don't like that's not a good marriage uh, if it's just built on doing the same. Like if you figure out a couple of loving things to do, like let's say take your wife out on a date to a to a fancy restaurant and, and give her give her a rose and tell her she looks beautiful and. You know, if if you have a a checklist of of really nice things you could do for her, and you just do that every day, that's not that's not what makes a good marriage. So there there is an argument to be made that that pattern without you know engagement is can it can be dead. And I, I Orson Scott Card says that in a really cool way in uh, in Speaker for the Dead. It's, he talks about how religion is like the bones of of the body or of society and it's like by themselves they're literally dead but it's these energetic these things things don't have to have any form on their on their own but like the, the muscles and the sinews that pull the bones into life and it's like you need the bones there but you also need the muscle to pull things around and it's like so i understand the frustration of of religion without anything else and i i understood his book like you know the end of religion sure yeah we, we need we need to not just have religion but i, I always see almost everything Every teaching and every popular book I see rise up in not just Christian circles, just whenever somebody wants to make a point, they always they always say not this, this, and almost every time when you make a statement in that format, you're wrong because it's not not this, this, it's this, but also this. Yes, yeah, and yeah, yeah. 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 The light, the power goes out one night in your house, and honey, why did the power go out? You know, I just wasn't really feeling paying that electric bill. I paid every <laughs> month. It's kind of row, but. It just doesn't feel authentic to me anymore, uh, <laughs> honey. I don't, I don't give a rat's ass about authenticity. Pay the bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's it's so true, and you know that that gets into again this whole question of authenticity. So it, it's fascinating watching, you know, sort of the churn of church in North America and the you know it's so funny because I talked to. I talk to Anglican clergy in Australia and the UK, and I tell them, I say, you know, you, you, your church is total hotness right now. And they're like, we ain't feeling it. I don't, I don't see that at all. <laughs> I'm saying, no, all the, all the hip young folks in California are, you know, grooving on the liturgy and the holy <laughs> water and calling it Eucharist. And they're, they're loving that stuff. And Australia, they're like, nah, everything's Hillsong. <laughs> they don't want to. They don't want to come by this old Anglican church. It's, it's, it's amazing. So, it's at least evident that it's very difficult to hold those two things in tandem. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and anyone who's who's married will understand that. Does your wife want some of those rituals? Yeah. Does she want you to mean it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's an easy easy place to bring it home because it yeah. it really goes home right there. <laughs> so what? So why do you two want to do a podcast? Ooh. Well, I, I was hoping may, maybe your clarification of of why you were doing yours would help me explain why I want to do mine. But I probably uh, it's probably we're the good answer. Christians. We're good Christians. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk to people. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're just so loving. I, I don't know. I, I think it's probably similar to like when I heard, I'll just steal Jonathan Peugeot's answer then because he, he said like, you know, why, why are you going and talking to all these atheists? I don't know. I just feel like I'm supposed to. And okay. it's, it seems interesting to me. And like, as far as the, the whole, 
phenomenology that Peterson talks about all the time. It's like, that's what's, you know, reality is what calls to you. It's like, this just feels like real. It feels like the thing I want to do. I need, I need to go and have some conversations. And I want to be better at it, too. I feel like, you know, realizing that speaking isn't just something that people do. It's actually a skill you have to, to hone and work on and practice and learn from other people how to do it better. And, and the conversation is, is a step higher than speaking because you have to also learn how to listen well. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't know, maybe just those tools seem really interesting. I, I think I, I might be able to make something with those tools. Good, good. But, okay. Well, I don't know how much time you still have to hang around. What time is it now? So we've been talking for half an hour? Talking for an hour. For an hour. Or okay. half an hour. Half yeah. an hour, an hour, okay. Yeah, it took a few minutes to set up. Yeah. Well, what, what's, what's kind of our, our cutoff point? I, I, I think... I, I have to be done an hour from now, but um, okay. that's, that's, my, that's my drop dead thing. <laughs> okay. Well, so we can at least go another five minutes anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I had a couple of, of, of things I wrote down that I thought, maybe if we get a chance, I can, I can ask these questions. Um, but let's see. I, I think I wanted to ask you about about Calvinism a little bit. Maybe you could, okay. you could school me a little bit. Because, so there's two questions I had about it. Because, I mean, I grew up with my, my dad and, and, you know, him being Dutch, my, my opa really uh, being hard advocates for Calvinism. And I, I, all I understood of it was, you know, there's some people out there that want to take away my freedom. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't like that. I'm free. I, I could do whatever I want. And like... And also, relationship doesn't mean anything unless, unless I can choose it. So obviously, obviously I have choice. That, that has to be it. And I, I guess, I don't know, hear, hearing some of the, the things that you've underlined, listening to some, I, I listened to a lot of your videos this past week because I was like, crap, I, I've only seen like maybe 10, 10 of his videos before and now we're going to have a conversation. I need to go and really do the deep dive. <laughs> And you found, and you found it was hopeless. <laughs> I can't listen to them all. <laughs> I was like trying to stay current. And I was like, was, I think I have, since I decided to start trying to keep up with you, I think I've maybe watched 10% of the videos you put out since that moment. <laughs> so yeah, that, that proved to be an impossible task. But I, as I've heard you talk a little bit and underline some different things in Calvinism, I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. What, one of which even being, uh, you brought up the idea I'm not sure if maybe it was even in your conversation with uh, that kid, TK, um, I don't know. Coleman? I, TK Coleman, I think so. Um, yeah. If that's his last name. If, uh, <laughs> somebody wrong. could correct us if that's wrong. Yeah. But uh, I, I think you brought up the idea, maybe it was in that video, but that like there's, there's a common thread in, in Calvinism and like critical race theory <laughs> in that yeah. they both have this, this, idea that that your sin is baked into you yeah like and for for the calvinist it's like i assume it's more because of adam or because of a, a fallen nature but then for the yeah. critical race theorist it's because of colonization or, or because of our culture being you know having a, a white white supremacy built into it so i wondered if maybe you could unpack that a little bit more because that that seemed pretty interesting to me Critical race theory, as you said, says we have some of this stuff baked into us and it's not, and, and we're not sufficient to release ourselves from it. And, and that is, that is deep into Calvinism. 
And, and not just, well, part of the difficulty about talking with Calvinism is that certain forms of Calvinism have become popularized recently and the Calvinist world is quite a bit broader than those particular forms. Cal John Calvin was basically a second generation reformer and he tried to, you know, usually with the first wave, like with Luther and then the, the Anabaptist, the radical reformation is just an explosion and stuff was left all over the floor. And in some ways, Calvin who was a French refugee trained as a lawyer starts picking up the pieces and say, let's see if we can bring some order to this mess. And, and Calvin's reordering basically gave a, a broad Protestant template that most, with the exception of the Lutherans and the Anabaptists, which are Mennonite, uh, Mennonite brethren, some of those groups, a broad template that most Protestant churches have sort of followed. Now, a hundred years after Calvin, they had some really big fights about issues surrounding choice and agency. And those arose, I think, to a large degree because of both the political and the philosophical issues of the day. And basically in a response to, to Arminianism, that is a Calvinist heresy. So it's a branch off of Calvinism that emphasized free will. And so when they went this way, the rest of the group went that way. And, and that sort of set up the dynamic that if Calvinism continues to get raised, that's what people are talking about. And I'd prefer them to see before that split, the general, the general work that Calvin had done. Part of what I saw happening with respect to critical race theory was a pattern that I had seen in particularly conservative doctrinal Calvinist that would say something like, yes, I'm totally depraved. And that profession of their depravity gave them status in the community, whether or not they did much about it. And having worked much of my life in African-American communities, I watched the same thing happen. People getting all in touch with their 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 privilege, and it's like there's lots of folks here that could probably use your help, but you got in touch with your privilege, and that means you're going to vote for one particular party or hate the other particular party, and talk about that with all of your people over here. I don't see that as doing anything for any of the people that might actually need your help. And I think, and then it was energizing a lot of people from minority communities to basically set up and say, all of our problems are because of those people. And well, I'm sure many of your problems are and due to the systems and whatnot, that's not going to help you. You're, you're going to have to, you know, if, if your life is hard, it probably means you're going to have to work harder. And anyone that's just saying you can sit back and relax and let all these people who now are completely imprisoned by their racism that these are going to be your saviors have you has has the second part of the paragraph read the first part of the paragraph i mean i'd watch this stuff happen and think this is just incoherent so and and i saw those same kind of dynamics happen within calvinist communities we're totally depraved so we have to redouble our efforts it's like well wait uh, a minute um 
<laughs> that 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 totally depraved hand is the same hand you're counting on to fix your mm -hmm. life. And so, you know, when you get to the five points of Calvinism that are outlined in the canons of Dort, when I read those those, I see a an ardent plea and appeal to Jesus Christ to be our rescuer. But if if we imagine that that in some way undercut our responsibility, then why have Calvinists both talked the five points and excoriated their community and tried to build institutions that do well in the world? If there's right. anything that the five points of Calvinist can't mean, right. it's that, oh, well, we're totally depraved. Let's just wait and see if God yeah. chose us or not. See, I, we'll I always thought that Calvinism, you know, just leads. <laughs> if there's no freedom, well, then nihilism is is the only feasible perspective is like none of my choice means anything because I don't have it anyways. Right. And, <laughs> and, and, and that would be a rational position to take if. If these, if these five points of Calvinism were exactly what that implies, but what I actually saw was that Calvinists were actually historically extraordinarily energetic people right. in terms of all sorts of things. Now, not always, not all, didn't always perform well, but if there's anything that I know, it's the five points of Calvinism don't make Calvinists lazy because I haven't right. seen a lot of lazy Calvinists. So yeah. then... I I always take a look at the canons of Dort in the light of another one of our historical confessions that your the Dutch Reformed have long had, which is the Heidelberg Catechism, and that's why I continually emphasize um, misery, deliverance, gratitude, because all of the energy that Calvinists have poured into improving the world is out of gratitude, and so if you understand how the canons of Dort. And the the Heidelberg Catechism actually work together. You can actually arrive at both embracing and saying, "Yeah, everything I do is tainted by sin." That's that's true of me, and there's nothing that I can do to earn status with God. That's also true of me. But what do I rely on? Then I rely on Christ's mercy, which cannot be threatened by anything in this world. Therefore, I can freely go out into the world and, and try to lay down my life and pour my life out for this world. And if I fail, you know what? It's not a surprise because I still got the canons of door. But if I, I'm also free to fail in a sacrificial way, because my salvation is not dependent upon it. And so when I look at things like the Weber thesis that say, oh, it's it's Calvinist anxiety that that sent them out into the world to, to try to gin up evidence of their salvation, well, maybe, but that seems dumb to me. So I'm going to look at the, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and work with them both. And so that's why in my preaching, I always emphasize misery, deliverance, gratitude. It's funny the other side of it, like so. Even even though, you know, people who are are just learning science or or, or philosophy or, or things like this, they're they're not part of the Christian conversation about Calvinism versus Arminianism or whatever you want to counter it with. There, the conversation still comes up. Like I remember earlier this or earlier last year, we we were reading um, Sapiens, and and Yuval Harari makes that 
that statement that like, you know, <laughs> we don't have free will. Or, yeah. or and, and the other day I, I was talking with my dad about, well, we were trying to figure out what sin is and I don't know if we made any progress, but I, it's like, if sin is just not hitting the mark, then yeah, obviously everyone and everything is constantly in, in utter sin because we are not being God or like we're, we're not being perfect. And yeah. so it's like, yeah, obviously all of us are, are incredibly sinful and don't have free will. <laughs> yeah, we're but, Calvinists again. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that then, doesn't mean people just sit around. Right. And that's, that's what I saw because I saw astoundingly moral and energetic people doing all kinds of things right. to, to help their neighbor and lay down their life. And well, whatever the canons of Dort means, it certainly doesn't mean that these people are passive because that's what I was hearing people complain about Calvinism. Oh, that would make me passive. And it's like, I know a lot of Calvinists. They're I don't see passive. them as passive. Right. So it's, it's the, the tree and the fruit phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah and, and they will know us by our fruit, right? Right. Yeah. But, and, and again, the Weber thesis was, well, Calvinists are energetic because they're anxious about producing fruit that it's like, what are they, what are they dumb? You know, cause that's an obvious trick. And to me, the logic of the Heidelberg catechism just proved better. Well, and they're both I didn't legitimate motivations, right? I, yeah. I'm, I'm motivated in one way to not do bad and another way to do good. Right. And, and, you know. Sometimes I need one and sometimes right. I need the other. I think that's yeah. also Peterson's self-authoring. And that's that holding two things at once that seem to be in total conflict as well. Like I, I one of the things, so we started a, a book club a little while ago and the, and the first book that we read was The Great Divorce. And there's this crazy chapter that I think we all read a couple times trying to understand it. And like, I still think I need to read it a bunch more. But the, the conclusion I, I kind of got from it was just like, I don't know, he just, he kind of, he plays with the whole free will and predestination thing for a while, and he plays with, with the opposite, and then he kind of says at the end, or, or basically I would sum it up as he says, yeah, yeah both of these are right. If you, if you think one of them's wrong, you're just not understanding it right. <laughs> well, it depends on where you are in time. Like, the right. past is obviously determined, and the future is very obviously not. So, right. from the present, both do exist, and from outside of time, then both exist even in the same place, which... Obviously, we are not outside of time, so we can't actually <laughs> understand that. It just depends on where you're looking, whether the Earth is flat or if it's a globe. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I like Tim Keller's answer to this because he said, you know, if um, if everything was determined, then I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But if right. nothing, if nothing was certain, then I'd be terrified to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> And so the Bible seems to be sort of a compatibilist about this. It likes to talk about, you know, chosen from the foundations of the earth. And also the, the biblical writers are making, you know, pleas to people to put on, you know, to, to walk in Christ's love and move with the spirit. Well, I don't think they imagined we had no agency, but they, I also don't imagine that we're just leaving it up to us. And so how to formulate this? And and get it right. Well, that's pretty hard when you put pen to paper. So, but at the same time, I think we understand. You can't you can't look at our lives and say so much hasn't simply been determined by 
the times that we live and the genetics that we have and right. the formation that we've had no control over. All of those things are tremendously powerful in our life. Right. Does that mean we have no agency? I don't think that's true either. Right. So, and I think probably maybe what you're what you're getting at, at least where I'm getting from this, is like, how, how do we deal with that? It's it's not a matter of figuring it out or like figuring out which one is right. It's like I I actually need people in my life of both of those motivations because there's perspective that come from that sort of philosophical or theological experiment that I'm not going to get if I'm engaged with one instead of the other. And I kind of need to pick one because, or else I, I can't, I don't have as much, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't have as much bought into either perspective to really get as deep as I might want to. So it's like, I, it comes back to the relationship thing. It's like, I, I need to have a community, I need to have a church, and it can't be built on agreeing with people. I actually really want other people to run different theological experiments in their lives that I can glean from and, sure. and have available to me. And the church provides that, actually, yeah. as does church history. Well, the, the classical church does, but I, I don't know what if the Patreon format of church is, is going to provide that. <laughs> well, and I think the, part, partly that could be, you know, a sign of, of the times and the, uh, like, like you got the, the discussion earlier about the church dying. Well, maybe, you know, 90% of the church dies, and then we return to that model that we were talking about where there's only one church that you get to go to anyway. <laughs> So it's, the scarcity it's, creates a new, yeah, yeah. A new, a new so it's like, I, I'm not worried that all of them would die, and of, of course, there's pain in, in some of them going away. But you look for it, and then you're gonna find it, and you're gonna learn to share, uh, you know, in share a scarcity. space with, yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe that maybe that scarcity is gonna be a, the exact valuable thing that we've been looking for. Ninety <laughs> percent of churches in America have less than seventy five people in them, and I would say. The numbers are greater if you look around the world. If there's one thing Christians are good at, it's starting small churches. Hmm. And they're, you know, so we have, we actually have a facility here, and there seems to be a near endless supply of churches that are between 20 and 50 people yeah. that they've outgrown the house and they want the next space up. And so most of them can't afford commercial real estate. So, you know, Churches will probably, you know, maybe buy mini malls and, you know, try to try to at least have, it's a crazy thing to, I, uh, once I was going someplace and drove into a strip mall and here's a little storefront church, the kind of storefront churches you usually see. And here's another, like an Antiochian Orthodox church in the storefront right next door. And I thought, you know, they're aspiring to have a cathedral someday, but you got to start somewhere. So, you know, just imagine a dozen people in that ugly little storefront going through the liturgy. <laughs> that's, that's with their vestments and the whole thing. That's probably where we're heading. The other thing about scale, though, that's I've been wondering about, and I, and I don't really understand what to do, because the more, well, I, I don't know if you've listened to... Um, that guy Daniel Schmachtenberger at all. Yeah. He's, he's brought up that problem of the Dunbar number, right? Of yeah. like, there's a critical point where you stop being able to care about everybody who's part of your group because there's just too many. And I, I that's kind of the, the narrative I see whenever I like look at a city or look at just any large enough group. It's like you, you stop being able to identify with it because it's not you anymore. And 
But I mean, so, you can choose to identify with it to the point that it benefits you against other groups of that size, right? <laughs> and and so you, you're going to buy in at a country level just because right. of the sheer benefit on a global scale. Yeah. Right? And and I think it's just maybe the importance is, is having those stratas all the way down uh, uh, without significant gaps that, you know, perhaps the church was one of those gaps that, or is one, was one of those strata that's right. now disintegrating. Yeah. Like you well, used to be able to get insurance through your church, right? Because that's a, it makes sense as a level of, you know, collective to share. A, you have enough, I guess, sway with the people that you're willing to buy into a shared, right. um, you know, cost of certain things. So, so what's happened with churches is that the middle has been squeezed out. So right. 90% of the churches are 100%. under 75, but I don't know what percentage, a good percentage of people go to churches over a thousand people. Mega churches. Yeah. Mega churches. And because mega churches can deliver a certain kind of thing and little churches. So then what happens in mega churches is then they have all of this small group ministry and all of these other little boutique ministries within to try to approximate. But what the mega churches can offer, the little churches can't offer. But if it's like they say you want too much. Yeah, well, it's it's it, the marketplace has been doing it because so the Christian Forum Church is mostly made out of middle-sized churches. There are churches less than a thousand, but more than more than a hundred. And so the Christian Forum Church tends to not be doing well in urban areas, but is doing just fine in rural areas because they can continue mm. to afford sort of the middle-sized church. Oh, the church, the church is. People like Daniel Smachtenberger has no idea of how fervently the church studies itself with respect to these things, yeah. especially since the church growth movement. There are There is nearly endless sociological studies and demographic studies going on about all of this stuff all the time because you actually have a lot of pastors whose livelihood sort of is built on having a going concern. And so... There's a lot of that going on too. It, it like it just seems like a a bad. It, it, well, I don't know. It, the, the economic way of of looking at it is like the Pareto distribution problem, right? It's like how do you how do you prevent like systems seem to just fall towards this disparity of like everybody is at one place or you know like there's, everything's on the one or, or it's the eighty twenty principle, right? Yep. But it's like how do you prevent systems from having the middle fall out? How do you hold them like? To me, I don't know, in a really symbolic and abstract way, it's like Christ is the middle or he's what holds the whole thing together. And it's like, Jesus is disappearing. <laughs> well, Jesus is in the little church and Jesus is in yeah. the mega church and they both have their strengths and weaknesses. But, you know, you might, we might ask, well, well, why did the middle-sized church thrive in the middle of the 20th century? Because that was their heyday. And, you know, when a, in the post, in the post World War II boom, when they would set out a new subdevelopment, they would set the corner lots for churches. They all knew that. And so you'd have a church of two, three, four, 500 people, and they build sort of a middle size. And now, you know, we have the same thing going on in retail. So again, it's the, the transitions are costly, but I tend to think we'll make it through. 
I, I, you know, Living Stones might not make it yeah. through because Living Stones was, you know, founded in 1963. And generally speaking, churches live for 50 to 60 years if they can survive their first five. So, and, you know, 70% of church plants fail. Again, all this stuff is studied like crazy, but, um, living stones is, you know, in 2023 will hit 60 years old. And unless my weird YouTube stuff somehow changes the dynamics of this church, it will probably die. And just like almost every other church of its age, of its era and people will be left behind and abandoned in that process. Now, how does COVID and YouTube figure out, figure into that? I have no idea, but it yeah. may, or it may not. Well, yeah. I'm we don't know. almost wondering how like, like technology is really buzzword is like decentralization. And I'm wondering if, if the church, as we see it as like one building with one leader is maybe more centralized than it even has to be. Like uh, at my church, we talk a lot about um, uh, sort of everyone's a minister, which is, that's what appealed to me is like leaving a church where it was like, either you, you're you nothing or you're a pastor, where there's like, I, I get spoken to about my, you know, me being a ministry and it kind of, uh, why what you're talking about is like just needing to listen to people. I think that's a big part is, can we in any situation do ministry and that's they they kind of all this this teaching is revolves around the ecclesia and kind of that being a word that was claimed from secular culture at the time and is about ministry in the marketplace and that's Mm. sort of we took that and made that this centralized church thing but it really wasn't anything that had to be separated from secular society so you know what maybe doesn't exist. I, I don't know what the pastor's role, like a specific pastor or preacher maybe can be put on YouTube. And then the ministry aspect is, you know, taken up by just, you know, followers of Christ, people that want to sacrifice their time to hear their coworkers when the rest of the, you know, the rest of the, your coworkers are too busy and, you know, just kind of move on to the next meeting or whatever. The church is full. So I've got books up here, house churches, cell churches, church in the market. I mean, the the truth is a lot of this experimentation continues to go on. And it's even, you know, we don't even know quite how, how YouTube will, will manage this. We could have mega churches where, see, part of the problem is that there, there are lots of natural things that happen. And so... So, okay, everybody's a minister. That was one of Rick Warren's. Every member a minister. The megachurch emphasized that because they're trying to deal with the size. Well, the problem is that, okay, so you're having a Bible study and you're going round robin around and you pretty quickly figure out, I like going to Bible study better when this person teaches. <laughs> he teaches better than the other ones. Okay, so we're gonna, always going to have this person teach. Okay. And then, I mean, if you follow these things, kind of the natural progressions happen. So, but churches right now are, it's it's unusual in North America to have a middle-sized church that can afford a full-time Christian, a full-time trained, seminary-trained minister. Uh, then a few years ago, they did a study that showed that seminary training was actually a liability in terms of success in church planting. 
which if you think about some things, but now let's say you've got the excitement about, let's say orthodoxy, where orthodoxy again will demand a fairly well-educated local church pastor because they're going to want him to be read in the church fathers, et cetera. So it's actually, you've got all these dynamics always in play. And at least in, especially in North America, it comes, it's a very vibrant, creative, religious environment. And so the church does a lot of experimenting, which is very Protestant-y. Um, but uh, that's, that's all that is happening all around us. And, and COVID just adds a whole new layer. So, you know, it's, yeah, it, the, the ride is always bumpy, but it's also exciting. So is, is that sort of where you derive a lot of your optimism from? The, the tradition in, in experimenting? Well, I derive my optimism because Christianity just keeps going. And it's, yeah. again, if you read yeah, church yeah. history, there's always these messes. The church gets itself into a horrendous mess and you think, ah, that's it. But, you know, <laughs> then, you know, the, you know, there's all kinds of issues in Northern Europe with the Roman Catholic church and the Protestant Reformation and not so much in Southern Europe. And in many ways, the Protestant Reformation forces the Roman Catholic Church to address some longstanding things in a significant way. And Luther, in fact, does reform the Roman Catholic Church, just no longer from inside of it. There's issues with Lutherism, so new things develop. And, you know, the the Wesleys come up, and Methodism is just enormously important. And then Pentecostalism comes up and spreads all over the world. And, you know... Christianity continues to grow and it's growing gangbusters in Asia and Africa right yeah. now, even as it's struggling in Europe and North America. But yeah. it's, I, I'm not counting the church out. It, 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 Christianity more than any other significant world religion manages to reliably seemingly reinvent itself without losing itself completely. And again, there's always loss in these transitions. But usually another generation will come around and look at that loss and say, oh, man, look what we lost and do something new with it. So I, w I was waiting for you to try to give me an answer, give me a solution and like engage with the problem. And, and you're, you're really creatively avoiding it. But I, I really appreciate that, actually, because I feel like you're just using a couple more words to tell me, trust God. That's right. That's right. Like the, the, and the, I'm this. a Calvinist. <laughs> we're, we're not smart enough to get out of this mess. So why don't you trust Jesus? To do it? Because he's he's been faithful for for thousands of years, and the Holy Spirit is still with us. And you know, if you were to ask me five years ago, you know, would the Orthodox Church would the Orthodox Church have a sort of Renaissance on the back of a of a a Canadian psychologist <laughs> yeah. doing biblical series on the Bible who'd have yeah. benzo withdrawal. And <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up, but here we are. So, and, and that I would be spending my time talking to Catholics and Orthodox and people all over the spectrum, but here we are. So <laughs> why, why worry? Jesus says, do not be worried. He says in this world, you will have trouble. Yeah, we do but I have overcome the world. So trust me. Okay. That seems basic Christianity and a lot of the other stuff is hard, but trust Jesus.
Okay, let's Thank start you. there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, maybe maybe let's end there. All right, all right. <laughs> well, this was fun. It was really fun. I, I really appreciate you, you doing this. It's it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Well, that was interesting. If you enjoyed this conversation, consider sharing it with someone else you think might find it interesting. Even better, try to find someone you think might disagree with something here and take some time to listen to their perspective. Try to have a meaningful, good-faith conversation. Practice listening deeply and patiently and speaking clearly and precisely. I think if we can get better at this, we might actually change the world. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.